0: Good morning, guys. How we doing? Well, happy Resurrection Sunday to you guys. Hey, real quick, as they're departing the stage, if it's possible, can we get the uh, house lights in here, turn up as much as we can? i want to do my yearly photo of you guys, because you all look so good. You're in your Sunday best. Is there any way we can get up a little bit higher? Awesome. As high as it can go. Lights, really good. Lights, helpful for photos. You guys cool if I take a photo of you guys? You guys look so good, I mean some of you guys are wearing like nice pink shirts and lavender and sure doesn't happen very often, but you know, this is that one day out of the year, we want to make sure that you guys catch you in that. So I'm gonna do a little photo. Are you guys ready? On a count of three. Give me a smile. Are you guys cool with that? Okay, ready? One, two, three. Can you guys say cheese? Alright, good. Well, I want to welcome you guys here. If this is your first time. My name is Brian, one of the pastors at Calvary Slow. And uh, what we're going to do, we're going to look at God's word in just a minute here. Because today what is, it is all about, it's about an event that happened. Christianity, first and foremost, is not just about warm, fuzzy feelings. It's not just simply about uh, some form of after-death insurance ...or assurance, reassurance as to what will happen for you, to you, after you die. Christianity, first and foremost, is about a historical event. It's about a God that created us. It's about humanity that's gone astray. It's about humanity that's drifted uh, into what the Bible describes as sin or brokenness. And it's about a God that has come in to restore and redo and rebuild and remake... That which has gone astray. That which is broken, he's come to heal. That which has died, he's come to raise again to life. This is what Christianity really at its core is all about. I want to read a passage to you guys out of the Gospel of Luke. If you would like, you're more than welcome to turn there. Uh, I think we have some either Bibles available or we also have the Scripture up on the screen. I'm going to read to you a passage out of the Gospel of Luke chapter 24 beginning at verse 36 down to verse 40. I'll just read the entire section, so uh, if you're following along, you can follow along and just listen. But what I want you to Im- imagine in your mind is to think of the story uh, as if it maybe have or has been the very first time in which you've heard it. For some of you guys, you're Christians. Most of us here today are here because you are a believer in this thing called the resurrection, meaning you follow Jesus. You love Jesus. God, you are a recipient of God's grace, God's mercy. Others of you guys are here because you're interested, you're curious, or someone dragged you, or worse, someone deceived you, and you are here, you thought this was a concert, it is not a concert. This is church, definitely church, unapologetically church. Um, so what I want to do, is I want to read the story to you, and I want you to listen to it and think about it. Here's what it says, beginning at verse 36, it starts off like this. It says, And as they were talking about these things, that is, Jesus' death, the rumors that were already circulating about Jesus' resurrection, it says, As they were talking about these things, it says, Jesus himself stood among them, and he said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and they were frightened, and they thought that they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do your doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. In verse 40 he says, And then when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while while they still disbelieved for joy, and they were marveling, he said to them, Have any of you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish seems very strange in the middle of a story about a resurrected Messiah in the middle of this asking for food. And we learn a little bit about Jesus' dietary desires. He likes broiled fish, apparently. Verse 43, says, And he took it and he ate it before them. Verse 44, and then he says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets... And the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer. And on a third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of the Father to you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So, Jesus is with his disciples. This is what's typically called the post-resurrection appearance. In other words, after Jesus rose again from the dead, Jesus is now with his followers, his disciples. Ironically, his disciples did not believe that this day would have happened. They didn't understand They were not familiar, they weren't aware of not only the Old Testament passages that allude to this, but they were also at the same time in disbelief up until this point. And so this is important to understand because the way Christianity begins are the main authors or the main people, the main players of this faith or religion if you want to describe it as such, but oftentimes we would... Uh, less likely describe it as a religion because for the most part it is more so about God doing something for us than us doing something for God. So therefore we would define it more so as a relationship, God involving himself in our lives. But it's interesting to note that beginning stages of Christianity were birthed by a group of men that did not believe in the very words of its founder. And so what we see here in this story are three specific things I want to take a quick look at. One is we'll take a look at the reality of the resurrection, that it happened. Secondly, we'll take a look at the purpose of the resurrection, why it happened. Thirdly, we'll take a look at the power of the resurrection, what happens as a result of this event. So first of all, let's take a look at the reality of it. In verses 36 through 40, what we see is Jesus actually coming to them and very clearly, lovingly, patiently actually addressing their objections to, this, to their belief, their confidence in Jesus. In other words, again, what I already mentioned, they did not believe that Jesus had resurrected from the dead. Now, previously in the chapter, what happens is Jesus rises again from the dead, and we're told that a few women go and visit the tomb. They discover that Jesus is not there. They actually have this supernatural appearance of an angel that comes to them. So they run back to the rest of the people that everyone's sad, everyone's uh, disturbed and, you know, just frustrated and bummed out and in despair because in their mind, their teacher, their master, their Lord, had been horrifically murdered just a couple days prior. So here they are all disturbed, all distraught, and these women bring this report. So there were these rumors or rumblings about this crazy reality that Jesus is either, A, not in a tomb, but even more importantly, that Jesus is not just simply not in the tomb, meaning they didn't just simply remove the body of Jesus from this tomb, this burial spot, but that he was actually seen, observed. So Jesus comes alongside these guys, and every single one of them have these objections, and then what we see Jesus actually addressing these objections by saying, touch and, and see and feel. Look at the wounds in my hands. Look at the, wound, or the wounds in my feet. Look at all of these tangible realities and evidences to the fact that I was dead, but I'm here. So again, one of the objections that they have in their mind is they think that they actually are seeing a ghost. So you'd imagine, all right, if the founder the one that you spent three years of your life invested in if he died and came back, you would probably imagine that you're seeing some form of an apparition or a ghost or a spirit. It's exactly what the disciples thought. But then Jesus, wanting to prove to them that he's not an apparition or that he's not a spirit, does something that spirits and apparitions don't do. He eats food. So Jesus' way of basically disproving their objections or at least patiently, lovingly, carefully addressing each of, their, each of their, uh, their objections is to address these things one by one. And one of the things that we learn about Jesus in this little scenario is that it's not just simply a historical fact, though it is, but what we see is that Jesus actually seeks to address those very forms of hindrances that keep them from believing. What we learn about Jesus is this, is that he's not put off by our objections, So some of you here today have objections. You think about Jesus, you think about God, it's maybe easy to simply uh, relegate him or marginalize him off into the side of your life and your mind and your thinking as just being um, a, a religion that's outdated. And yet what Christianity is, is it's far more than that. That God has done something for us. And Jesus patiently comes to us he's not put off by your questions by your doubts by those things that you object to because the reality is is that the resurrection which is really the cornerstone of the christian faith it's the number one thing that you and i if you're a christian here today that we look at as being the most fundamental important part of the christian faith Yes, Jesus being born in a manger is important. Yes, Jesus dying on the cross is also equally important. But the most important element of our entire Christian construct or framework is this event called the resurrection. If there was no resurrection, there would really be no faith. What you would have was a would-be Messiah, a would-be prophet, dying. Dying. ...and that would have been the end of the story. And Christianity probably would have never got off the ground... ...because immediately after Jesus died... ...Rome did everything they could to try to suppress this movement... ...because they were always afraid of some form of revolt... ...in the form of Judaism rising against Roman emperors. But that's the exact opposite of that happened. Christianity began to flower. Christianity began to spread in great profound ways... Because Jesus rose again from the dead. Now I realize some of us may, again, have those objections. Because the reality is, is this type of stuff, these events, do not happen in our world. It's the reason why we would call this a miracle. God does something totally unusual. Meaning, we don't wake up every day and see people rising again from the dead. So if you have objections to somebody rising again from the dead, it makes perfect sense, but God works oftentimes in ways that doesn't make sense to us. If indeed he is God, that means that he must, by necessity, know stuff that you and I have no way of knowing. And this is what the Bible claims, that we have a God that rose again from the dead. And Jesus comes patiently, lovingly, to address These objections that they have, in the same way Jesus comes to you, if you have those objections, to dress, to help, to patiently guide you through those things, should you allow him. He has the ability to transform cynicism into affection and love again. Cynicism has this dehumanizing effect. People that are controlled or mastered by cynicism become less than human in the way they act. ...in the way they treat others. But Jesus has the ability to undo that. And this is what we see that Jesus does with his disciples. He gives them his hands and his feet... ...and he says, I'm not a spirit... ...and I'll eat food in front of you... ...to prove to you that spirits don't eat food... ...that I truly am indeed... ...risen again from the dead. That even though this may seem... ...totally unreasonable... ...it's not irrational... Because it's totally unreasonable to talk about someone that rose again from the dead but it's not implausible and this is what the claim of the christian faith is really all about here's four quick reasons why you can actually believe that that tomb was empty i'll give them very fast one is that the tomb narrative actually predates the gospels in other words before the actual gospels we call them matthew mark luke and john if you're unfamiliar with them the first four books of what we would call the new testament That there was already in circulation kind of statements, or oral tradition, if you would. Um, In fact, there is a passage in the book of 1 Corinthians, a letter that was written to early community of Christians living in a uh, great city called Corinth, um, in Corinthians chapter 15. And it's oftentimes agreed by almost every scholar, even uh, scholars that basically tear into the Bible and disbelieve its truths, even guys like Bart Ehrman. ...who is a great objector to the Christian faith... ...he would basically say that this creed... ...that was actually written and chronicled for us in the book of Corinthians... ...was actually probably around circulation around three years after Jesus' death. That means that people were already talking about the fact that Jesus had resurrected from the dead. Something happened. Something took place. Something inexplicable That has actually changed people's lives. The second thing is that Jesus' body was actually buried in Jerusalem. This is really significant because we know that Christianity began in Jerusalem. It began in Jerusalem and then began to circle out into all sorts of other cities and villages and regions. uh, Really ultimately throughout the entire known world at that time. And it's really significant to note that this happened in Jerusalem. Because if Jesus did not rise again from the dead or if the tomb was really not empty it'd be very easy to squash that rumor before it got any traction because it'd be like someone saying uh, something that we can all verify as a non-truth because we were there. There was a bunch of eyewitnesses, but that didn't happen. So therefore, it must mean that no doubt that tomb was empty. A third thing is that Jesus' tomb was actually discovered, first of all, by women. Now, this might seem like an insignificant thing, but it's very significant if You are living in the first century. This is, um, in the first century, it was a very male-dominated culture and society. So, therefore, women were actually not given any form of reliability if they were to be an eyewitness of an event. And, uh, obviously, things have changed since then, thank God. But the reality is that back in that culture, a woman's eyewitness account was actually worthless. So, if you were going to write or pen out a religion and call it Christianity the very last thing that you would do would, would be that you would use an unverifiable witness to be the very first eyewitness of the most important event of that religion. Does that make sense? So the question has always been asked, why did the gospel accounts and gospel writers tell us that it was a woman that saw that Jesus rose again from the dead first? Answer, they were just telling a story based upon events as it happened. In other words, it is historically reliable and verifiable. Jesus rose again from the dead. Finally, fourth, that the uh, Jews and the religious leaders and the people in that first century that were claiming that the disciples had stolen the body, I think I had written up there, I'll get to that one in a second. Um, There were all these rumors that were circulating that the body of Jesus was stolen. So this was wide knowledge, that people were making these rumors and these assumptions that somehow the body was stolen. And the final one, uh, I've written up there in four, so there's actually five, but this is the fourth one uh, I've written up there. Changed lives uh, of those who follow Jesus. So how can you account for the multitudes of people? Because in the gospel accounts, what you find, especially in the story that we just read... These people that were part of the story were actually disbelievers. These people that were part of this early Christian movement did not believe that Jesus rose again from the dead until something happened. Until Jesus appeared to them. When that happened, everything changed. It's a historical fact. Second thing, not only the reality of the resurrection, the second thing is the purpose of the resurrection. The purpose is distinct from the reality because in reality this is not just simply a historical record it is historically accurate it is historically traced you can look at it as an event but the reality is is that if this was just simply a historical event period historical events alone don't change our lives how many of you have had your life change when you discovered someone landed on the moon like nobody All right, the answer to that is, like, nobody had their life changed. Nobody lived their life differently because of that historical factual event. So, in other words, historical factual events alone don't change lives. But something in this story shows us their lives are changed. That leads us to the question, what was really the purpose of the resurrection? Verses 42 through 47 Describes kind of a series of events. It says this, and then they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and he ate it before them. And then he goes on to say, and then he begins to expound to them that what they're witnessing, what they saw, what actually happened historically, was actually based upon a series of events that were already written aforetime through writers called prophets. And written by writers, guys like Moses, people that had written the first five books of the Bible, we would call that the Torah, and then the writings, which would be like prophets, and then the Psalms and all of these various writings that the Jewish population held as dear. Jesus is basically saying that what you're witnessing right now, right here, is all about God keeping good on his promise, and the way he does this, the way he presents this to them, is through a meal. This is amazing. Just prior, in the early part of the story that I didn't read, um, it says that Jesus was walking on this road to Emmaus, and he's with these two guys, and they're discussing all the events that happened, and Jesus kind of comes up alongside them. It says that they couldn't, they didn't know who Jesus really was. They they couldn't, uh, something about Jesus' resurrected body, in other words, post-death New life body was distinct, even though there was a continuity, there was a form of discontinuity, in other words, to this resurrection body. So Jesus is talking with these guys, and he's like, you guys seem really, really bummed. What's wrong? And they're like, are, are you from out of town? You have no clue what's going on. And Jesus is like, well, try me. What's, what's up? They're like, this guy that we loved and we followed and we thought he was going to be the king, he ends up being brutally murdered and crucified. And here we are. We hoped that he was going to be the, the king, the promise of God's word. And Jesus sits down with them, and it says, he breaks bread, and it says, as soon as he broke bread, they realize that this was indeed Jesus himself. So in other words, Jesus invites people to a meal. When I think about a meal, I think about a really good time hanging out with people that I love, and having good food. And there's something about a meal that really speaks to kind of the inner core of who we are as human beings, because at the end of the day, a good meal with good people has all the elements of awesomeness. I mean, some of you guys are going to go home today and have a really good meal. You're going to sit down, and even if it's sometimes with family that you may or may not necessarily get along with, there's something about a really good meal that's radically humanizing. In other words, it speaks to the very core of who we are because good meals have this ability to bring about a sense of honor, a sense of welcome, and ultimately a sense of home. When you have a good meal, you feel at home. Jesus sits down with his disciples. He says, let's have a meal. And it's through the meal, through the broken bread, through the gathering together, through the eating together, that Jesus is able to say, this is who I am. So the purpose of this resurrection ultimately is to restore that which was lost by way of relationship. It's one of the reasons why it goes on to say later on in this little portion of scripture that we read, it says, then he said, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, verse 46. Then he says in verse 47 that the repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all nations. The point is a meal basically is a very clear uh, depiction or picture of what it means to be brought home. That no matter what type of past you've lived before, no matter what type of way in which you've been defined by your past or circumstances or things that have been done against you or things that you have done, sins that you've committed, sins that have been committed against you, when you are brought near to this, this table that Jesus offers, you're home. You're cleansed. You're forgiven. You're washed. He says this is based upon a twofold scenario of forgiveness of sins, but also a repentance, meaning we turn from alternative meals that actually dehumanize and destroy. They might provide temporary satisfaction. It's like junk food. I mean, it tastes really good, but at the end of the day, there is absolutely zero nourishment whatsoever. But the meal that Jesus spreads before his enemies is when they says, whoever you are, no matter how far you've gone, no matter how dysfunctional, no matter how broken, no matter how far from home you feel as if you have drifted, there's always a spot for you at this table. And we see that this resurrection purpose is about God reconciling, God restoring, God fixing that which is broken, God healing that which has become riddled with sickness and disease. This is the God that we have. This is what Christianity is about. Again, it's not just simply historical facts. Because historical facts alone don't save us. Most religions have, to some degree, when the leader leaves, they leave behind some form of a tomb by which you can go visit. They leave behind some form of a a mausoleum, some... Uh, book even that the author or the writer or the leader of that group had written. Um, interestingly enough, Jesus didn't write any chapters in this book, per se. I mean, he inspired it, if you want to get technical on that, yes, inspired every single word of it, but Jesus never wrote a book, he never started a university, he never even kind of planted a church, per se, as we would oftentimes think of it in that sense. Uh, but the fact of the matter is what we see that Jesus actually leaves behind is a meal, broken bread, and poured out cup. And that meal is always a reminder to us of this desire in God's heart to restore broken fellowship, to to restore broken lives, to bring healing to where there was nothing but disease. So we see the purpose, and finally we see the power of the resurrection. Verses 48 through 49 says this. says, you are witnesses of these things, In other words, you saw it, you guys were there, you watched, you witnessed, you saw this. And then Jesus then says, and behold, I am sending the promise of the Father upon you to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And this is a reference uh, to what's commonly called the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost, depending upon what translation of the Bible that you have. In fact, next week we're going to be starting a brand new series looking at the person of the Holy Spirit. But right now I just want to focus on this one particular element of it. That one of the things that we see is that when these disciples, the followers of Jesus, left Jesus... ...or Jesus left them and ascended to heaven. Again, a whole other story which I won't get into. Something radically happened. In fact, if you want to follow the story, you could, on your own time, uh, read through a a book called the book of Acts. It goes like this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John... And then the book of Acts. The book of Acts is basically the continuation of the Jesus people. It's a continuation of the Jesus story. But only this time, it's not through the lens of physical, tangible, gentle Jesus cruising the streets of Jerusalem. It's through the Jesus people. But what you see about Jesus people is something so radically amazing. Is that if you follow the life of Jesus people prior to the resurrection... They're always bickering and arguing and fighting. Their hearts are filled with contention and frustration towards each other. They envisioned Jesus was going to be like this political leader that was actually going to violently overthrow Rome. But that's not at all what happened. Jesus was actually violently overthrown himself. In other words, the kingdom that Jesus came to bring was one that conquering came not through violent overthrow, but by sacrifice, ...love, forgiveness of sinners. And what we see with Jesus... ...is that Jesus basically tells his disciples... ...you'll be given power. So prior to Jesus' death and resurrection... ...they're fighting, they're full of argument... ...after Jesus dies, they're filled with despair... ...they're frustrated, they're sad, they're afraid... ...they're afraid for their lives... Uh, again, something happened that absolutely changed the course of these people that are full of despair throughout, into the book of Acts, whereby they are no longer filled with despair. They're filled with a sense of courageousness and boldness and love and generosity and care and compassion and kindness. And how do you explain for that? And the answer, really, according to the Bible, is they were given power. The resurrection actually Change them. The resurrection has the ability to change you in at least two ways. What we see in the book of Luke are the early church doing one of two things. Actually, both. One is the resurrection. If you allow its story to enter into your life and allow your mind to go there and to believe and to trust it. Again, that it is able to be trusted and simply more than just simple facts. If you allow it to grip your heart, to transform you, to fill you with a sense of awe, not just simply of the event, but of the God that did all of this, it has the power to do one of two things. One, actually both, one is to, it'll free you from fear. We see the disciples totally, fearlessly, courageously going out, preaching this good news of Jesus. Even in the face of threats against their life, And on more than one occasion, they were basically this young, brand new movement. They were basically told, if you keep preaching the name of Jesus, we will lock you up in prison. The very next day, they go out and they continue to preach. And they ratchet up their threats. And they say, if you preach, we will kill you. they're like, whatever. They killed our master. And the next day, out in the streets, preaching. How do you stop a movement of people that will not blink in the eye of death? Why? How is it possible? Because Jesus saved them from their fears. You and I, we oftentimes live our lives based upon what we fear. In other words, you can put it this way. We are, for the most part, mastered by that which we dread most. So we do things like this. We're afraid of getting poor. So we spend so much energy and time thinking about how to protect our money and protect our assets and protect our goods. So we invest more money. We invest more energy. And all of a sudden, if there's any threat of somehow this being upset, we freak out. Why? We're afraid. What drives some people to be Workaholics. Some would argue, well, it's like they love their job. Really? Is it that they love their job, or is that more importantly, they actually are dreadfully afraid of becoming nothing but insignificant? So they work hard. Work to the point where they sacrifice their wife and their husband and their kids because underlying all that is this fear that is mastering them and they are a slave to that fear that says you are nothing. You have nothing. And they keep working harder and more feverishly to prove that it's not true. I am somebody. I, I will prove myself. I'm something. I have something to offer and to contribute of greatness. And you sacrifice everything. But it's actually driven by Fear. Death fears us. We're afraid of death. I mean, we live in SLO, and SLO is an amazing place, and it's filled with great outdoor activities, and most of you guys are physically fit, and you look awesome, especially on your Sunday best today, your teeth are nice and pearly white, and you're maybe older age, and you've got big ripped arms and washboard abs, and you are absolutely amazing. But Underneath that, is it possible that there is a fear of going gray, fear of being fat, fear of being nothing, fear of death? But the resurrection basically says, look, this life that we live is not all we have. You will die. You cannot outflank death. It's a horribly morbid message on a day like today, right? But the reality is these are the things that we face, and these are the realities that the resurrection addresses. Death is the consequence of us turning our back on God, saying, God, I will have it my way. I will live my life according to my wisdom, my ideas, my concepts. And we turn our back, and we walk from God. We're not just simply walking away from God as an option in this world, but we are walking away from life itself. Walking away from life itself leads to only one true choice. It's death. And yet we are morbidly afraid of death. But the resurrection actually frees us to be afraid. It frees us from those fears. That's why the disciples could literally, in the face of bold threats against their livelihood... Say, I'll take Jesus. You can take my life. He'll just give it back to me again. Do you realize that people that truly believe the resurrection are absolutely unstoppable? People that have broken bodies find great hope in the resurrection. Because we live in this life and we have this tendency. If all this life is all that we have to live for, all that we have to be given, then it would stand to reason that if YOLO is true, then it would stand to reason that we have to grab and secure and protect everything we can. Because once we die, it's done. But the hope of the resurrection says, no, not true. Jesus died, but Jesus rose again. And the Bible says that all who trust in this King will share in the same fate that he shared in, which means that as Jesus suffered and died, so we in this life will suffer and die to some degree. But as Jesus rose again, those who are followers of this King will also rise as he rose. And that has his power to deliver us from the fear of death and from all other fears that cripple us and crush us and oppress us and taunt us. Final thing is that the resurrection also has the ability to free us to love, free us to love other people. Because, look, people who realize that if God has this ability to give us life beyond the life that we have right now, if God has this ability to do this, then I can afford to give my life away to the service ...and care and compassion and love of other people. I can afford to actually give my money away. That Rather than being mastered by fear of losing my money... ...so therefore i got to spend all sorts of time and energy... ...to somehow secure it and protect it. If the claims of the gospel are true... ...if Jesus really did rise again from the dead... ...if this historical event really is historical and an event then that means that we are actually free to use the things that we have in this life that oftentimes cripple and crush and oppress other people to use this, to leverage it in a way to bring blessing to other people. So money, rather than being this master over me, and I'm just a slave, I can actually use money now to generously give away to people that have nothing. I can bless people that are broken. I can love people that are unlovely or unlovable. Because the gospel has this ability to be able to transform. And this is exactly what we see in the life of the early followers of Jesus. They went from being afraid. They went from constantly bickering and arguing. Trying to protect their own little territory as to who is going to get what. When Jesus becomes king and overthrows Caesar. To radically being willing to die. And ultimately dying for their faith. Because they were transformed by this thing called the resurrection. This is the good news. That we have a God that rather than simply turning an indifferent eye to our pain, our suffering, our defilement, our brokenness, the fears that we have, God comes into this world through Jesus and takes upon himself every human experience that we feel. That's what Good Friday was all about. That's what Jesus dying on the cross is. It's the picture of God saying I love you. I love you. I love you. I have not abandoned you. Resurrection Sunday is God saying, I've accepted everything that Jesus has done on the cross, and I put my stamp of approval. Therefore, he has risen from the dead. Death has no power over him. And all who follow this king will share in his same. Fate. This is really good news. This is what God invites you into. This is what God calls you to. Because the flip side of this is that if we just keep following the same path, the same course that we are, without ever being interrupted or without ever any change happening, we oftentimes will try to do the best we can to make the most of our lives. But at some point, when we are weak or when we are unable or we are crippled by some form of means, we then will break. And that brokenness leads to what Jesus describes as torment, destruction. And this is what Jesus comes to save us from, to bring us healing where there was brokenness. Christianity is not just simply about a get out of jail free card. One day out in the future post-retirement. Christianity is about a God that has come into our suffering, into our lives, into our world right now to free us from the grip that fear and dread and all these other things that have over us, and then to free us for love, loving God, loving others, to be free, to be truly free. And this is what Jesus invites us into. This is what the great Augustine, some of you might be familiar with him. Uh, had written about. He, in describing his life, uh, called the Confessions of Augustine, describes at one point his desires were these disordered desires, meaning he was always full of love, but he loved the wrong things. You and I are just like that. We love the wrong things. What Augustine discovered was that things that he loved that were wrong, the wrong things that he loved, the things that he loved were actually death-causing in him. They were killing him. Christianity basically says you love God and you won't be crushed. You'll be given life. The gospel has this ability to reorder our loves. I want to invite you to come to that table, if you would, to think about it this way, of coming to a table, of partaking of a God that gives life, surrendering your heart to him, trusting in him, what Jesus describes as repentance is really a way of saying, I'm going to turn from these other loves, these other things that have actually promised me much, but have always ended up in the end leaving not only the bill for me, but also the tip as well. Christianity says, The costs is far more, there's much promise, but I will pick up the tab and I will pay for it all. It's a matter of trusting this God. We're going to finish. We're going to respond. We'll sing a couple more songs. But if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, what I would invite you into is just trusting Jesus, turning from, recognizing some of those other parts of your life that are broken, that are dysfunctional, that lead down paths, again, which promise much but always lead to more brokenness, to trust a God that created you, that knows how you're wired, that designs you to give, his, give your heart back to him and let him rewire you. To have life. If you're this morning, you're a Christian. My prayer is that this truth would be so invigorating, so transforming, that when we think about singing to God, that the greatest celebration that we can muster up in our entire year, which is right now, would just come forth in the form of song. Lifting up our hands, lifting up our voices, lifting up our praise to this God that just not on a historical fact rose again from the dead. But in the most unbelievable term of events, God has undone something that has plagued and crushed and oppressed every human being since the dawn of time. Death. He overruled. Life is not possible. Isn't that good news? Are you guys convinced of that? That's good news. Why don't we all stand? Why don't we all stand and let's sing. Let's respond to this God. Okay? You guys ready to lift up your voices? We've got to show some excitement. It's okay to clap, to get excited, to dance, to sing. We have an unbelievable God that has done more than what we can ever imagine. All right, so if there's ever any time throughout the entire year to get crazy in terms of response to God, it's, it's literally right now. I mean, I realize for the most part, we have a very young church, a lot of younger people, a lot of young, kind of indie rock and very cool type of mentality. And singing loudly, showing any form of affection is a little bit like, "Mm, I don't want people to think weird about me. But out of any time, out of the entire year, to do that would be now, it is okay for PDAs with God. Let's do it.